Hello, everybody. Welcome to Glass Onion. I'm John Lennon, and this is our review of the 2006 documentary, The US versus John Lennon. And I'm absolutely delighted to have with me someone who's been on my Life and Life Finding podcast and whose work I've followed for many years, James Corbett of The Corbett Report. How are you doing? I am doing excellent, Anthony. Thank you for having me on. As you'll recall, when I was on Life and Life Only, I said, I will know I've made it as a podcaster when I'm on Glass Onion. So I have made it. It is official. And I come prepared with my Meet the Beatles t-shirt, even though I grew up on the Parlophone records. So Meet the Beatles means nothing to me, but it's the only t-shirt I happen to have lying around. But I'm wearing it because this is not even the first Beatles-related podcast I've recorded today. Shameless plug, I was just uh, doing my monthly series with Vinny Caggiano where we're doing uh, deep dives into the music theory of each song and we're eventually we'll probably get to all of them <laughs> so I was just doing that one today so I thought I'd wear the shirt yeah and we've had a bit we had a mutual acquaintance as well Matt from uh, Pop Goes the 60s you were on his show and then he, he invited me on as well it's fantastic and then I've introduced him to your work your non your non-Beatles work so nice bit of cross-pollination going on there um, you also said earlier in the year that, that you wouldn't come on my podcast unless you had anything. Uh, you said you'd only talk about the John Lennon assassination, but we found something. Uh, you know what? Email. You know what? Go on, go on. I just thought of the other topic that would have been good was John Lennon as a writer, because I saw I heard your conversation on that topic. Yeah. And I'm like, I could have I could have done that. <laughs> That's I something I would have had something to say about. But <laughs> this is the next. best. <laughs> As I said on that program, I, I read his three books again in, in quick succession. I was just so blown away and so inspired. I just thought, I love John Lennon all over again. Because I, I was on Two Legs, you know, the Paul McCartney podcast in, uh, oh, I think it was March or something. And I was going through a period where, you know, you know how it is. <laughs> John, John Lennon was starting to annoy me a bit with all his contradictions. I was just going through a phase. And I kind of said that, and because they were a Paul McCartney podcast, they probably enjoyed that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm only kidding. But um, no, uh, reading those books, it's just like, oh, I fell in love with him again and and with this documentary as well. Um, can you just introduce your website, first of all, and then we'll get into the doc itself. Right, yeah. So for any of your listeners who don't know, I'm James Corbett. I'm from CorbettReport.com, The Corbett Report. It's a uh, news information History, philosophy, science, anything I want to talk about website that I started back in 2007. Uh, Originally as a podcast, it very quickly became articles, videos, interviews, all sorts of things. So I've been doing that for 14 years now. I've been doing it full-time as my full-time career for the last 10 years. Can you believe it? I can't. Yeah. Yeah. And you're still sane as well. You seem (laughs) relatively sane to me. Depends who you ask. I think some people might disagree with you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, so your work is essentially, again, if people have listened to Life and Life Only, it's essentially, let's call it alternative information. I don't like that other that other phrase that gets, uh, that's a dismissive phrase. Um, yeah, um, but you've done, uh, so you and I, our history, like, I discovered you about 2008, I think, and uh, I loved your work from the start. And then at some point, I, I saw one of your Beatles videos. And then early this year, I wanted to get you on Life and Life Only, and then I mentioned to you that I had a, a podcast about John Lennon. You said, oh, I haven't heard of that. And then you've been listening to that. So, you know, it's all come together nicely. Come together. See what I did? <laughs> Didn't plan that. I haven't got that in my notes. Um, and just to say about the Corbett report, it's far better than the Colbert report. 
Oh. There's only one letter out. But, uh, you know, the funniest thing is I did not think of that at the time I was starting that. I didn't even cross my mind. But then I started to get emails over the years, like, you know, like people like, oh, I was searching for Colbert Report and I found you. Yeah. <laughs> or sometimes I even get emails that are clearly people thinking I am Stephen Colbert <laughs> and are right, saying, right. you know, why did you make that joke about the Tibetan monks or something? And I'm like, what are you talking? Oh, you think I'm Colbert? No, 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 no Corbett. Yeah. Well, I remember years ago, did, did Stefan Molyneux guest host your show for a while? A very long time ago, yeah. Yeah, and, and he called it the Corbert Report. And I'm like, hey, what about it? Hmm, I think Stefan's got confused there as well. <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, let's get on to it. So just before we get in the film, in fact, um, as is traditional on Glass Onion, what's your Beatles, John Lennon origin story? And what, what role does John Lennon play in your life, would you say? All right. So I am a, a Beatles child, you might say. My parents um, subjected me to them <laughs> growing up. And it did feel that way as uh, for much of my childhood when we went on long car drives, you know, to, uh, holidays or whatever. We'd be listening to the Beatles. And so we were steeped in them from childhood on. And uh, uh, the original Parlophone, you know, records and everything, we used to use them as Frisbees and stuff. So <laughs> so definitely a, a child of the Beatles. And it wasn't until I was a teenager that I started to realize, much to my chagrin, that, oh, actually, yeah, okay, they were kind of amazing. And I found that, discovered that through the anthology, um, specifically... Uh, when that was playing on television, back in the day when people used to watch television, I decided, oh, my parents will like this. I should record it for them. So I started recording it on VHS. And back in the day, I don't know if people these days even remember, but you couldn't change the channel that you were recording. You had to sit there and watch it or turn the TV off. But mm. I wasn't going to do that. So mm. <laughs> I sat down and watched mm. it. And uh, it was actually the story... I mean, I don't care if you like their music or not. The story of the Beatles as a mass media phenomenon is fascinating and truly, I mean, really amazing. And so that, I think, drew me in. And it was through the anthology that I started to hear bits of songs that I hadn't I'd probably heard before, but I never really listened to. I'm only sleeping and things like that. I'm like, oh, that's, that's a really good song. And so I, then I went into the my parents' record collection and started listening to the albums and and from that point on, um, I've been a fan. Uh, I got the Lennon Anthology uh, when that came out. Uh, that was a Christmas present that my parents gave me because they knew I was getting into it. And uh, I loved that. And that's the way I approach Lennon's solo work. Um, I, I like that because it strips out all the... Oh, gosh, I'm going to make some enemies here. The sometimes cheesy 70s production that's very dated and doesn't... I don't know. I, I like the stripped-down acoustic versions of those songs. Excellent songs. So that's the way I approached Lennon's solo work, and uh, I've been a Lennon fan for a very long time. But uh, younger me was, of course, steeped in and exposed to John and Yoko Inc., and that image that, of course, has been the public image of John and Yoko, you know, that we, I'm sure all of your listeners are well familiar with. It wasn't until much later uh, that I started to discover, oh, you know, maybe that was a, you know, corporate brand image that was painted on there. And going more towards the uh, the Goldman side of the uh, continuum, as it were. <laughs> Very good. Yes, I like that. You mentioned the Goldman Goldman continuum. Very good. Well, we were actually saying, just to repeat one thing we said off air before we started recording, um, we, we found the same thing independently, that we're finding that the the story of how the world works 
and the story of what happened with the Beatles, there's a parallel in, in terms of it's always changing. And there's a continuum, let's call it a mainstream to conspiracy continuum, where one end is like the news is telling us everything we need to know. You know, there's, we're not, nothing's being hidden. And I don't think there's anyone who believes that anymore. And then the other thing is that everything in your life is conspiracy from the moment you wake up. So, yeah, it's just endlessly fascinating, isn't it? I and want, uh, may I put in another shameless plug, yes, but uh, as the sort of crossover for our audiences, I did do a, an episode specifically on everything I know about conspiracy I learned from the Beatles or something. Mm, I can't remember, I remember the exact that. title, but it's in my archives. I was talking to Vinnie Caggiano. We went through a bunch of various, you know, conspiracy stories surrounding the Beatles and looked at their veracity or lack thereof. And you're right, there is there is clearly something that converges. And as I say about that story, about this mass media phenomenon that was the Beatles, clearly there was a lot of interesting historical things going, swirling around about it, which we'll be talking about certainly one aspect of that today. Absolutely. And what do you think John Lennon's place is in 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 2021, let's say? Obviously, there's this image that we know that the peacenik image is being played up you know, you, you know, you, Yoko, I like Yoko, you know, but she's constantly saying, you know, John's light is shining on the world and all these kind of cliches. Um, what do you think his role is? Is his voice still relevant in 2021? What would you say? Yes, to people who actually think deeply about things and want to actually understand the truth. I, I think there is. There's a lot of very interesting things. But in the exact, so it's the exact mirror image of the, cliched, silly, obviously caricature of John Lennon, the peace guru, whatever, that was built up in the minds of the public and was obviously cemented by the the goodwill and the feeling that people had after his murder. Obviously, that, that sort of martyred him and set in, in stone that sort of sculpture of idea that people have. Now there's the mirror image of that, which is the ridiculous internet meme that he has become these days where I've literally I've seen people sharing things like, oh, here's a picture of John and Yoko letting the ma hotel maid make their bed. <laughs> They're not so floating on clouds anymore as if that. Yeah. Like, yeah the, the song Imagine was about imagine no hotel maids or something like I yeah, mean, yeah. it's just it's ridiculous. It's it's reducing a very complex human being down to the simplest caricature and saying, look, he's not that he's this. And it's. It, it's just such a, a dumbed-down, silly conversation. Um, but for people who are, at, I'm sure, in your audience, who are interested in this, a deeply complex human being, and there's a lot to dig into there, that we, I mean, yeah, I think very relevant for 2021. Again, if you put in the effort to actually look beyond the, the scrape, the surface of the meme-level image that we have of John Lennon. Absolutely. And the telling quotes as well. I mean, there's a few in this film. I'll get to as many as I can in the time we've got. But he, he's so quote worthy and he had this ability in his music. Plastic Ono Band has become my favorite of his albums by quite a quite a long way now. Closely followed by the White Album, because I, I don't know if you've heard um, Beatles Naked. They did a John Lennon's White Album and a Paul McCartney's and you could have two solo single albums if you take their songs from 68. Anyway, um, he, he did this thing in his music and in his and his speaking of just boiling something down to its absolute essentials. You know, obviously often accompanied by a pun or something like that, you know, to really hammer it home and with humor. You know, in some ways he was his own worst enemy, though, um, because, uh, for example, one of the things that he's attacked for now, oh, he was a life beater and all of this. 
Well, we only know about his abusive relationships and things because he talked about it. He was the one who was saying and talking about this and saying, you know, I did these horrible things and everything. And now then that's used against him, even though he was himself reflecting on it and saying. And again, it's a more complex psychological story than I think people want to give it. They just want to paint it one way or another. And that's, you know, as you know, from your explanation, that's too limiting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he, I, I said on the show, he, he's different from other celebrities because most of them try and hide their dark sides. Yeah. And he probably exaggerated. Yeah, you know, exactly. Trips. Yeah. You know, I was a, I mean, he, yeah, he, he said I hit women, which could mean, you know, I hit them once, twice, all the time. You know, we don't know. We don't know. Anyway, um, I've got so many notes. So I'm just going to relax and try and get through as many as I can. <laughs> so let's start with the general impressions of the film. If you don't mind, I'm going to go first because the first thing that leaps out, the music just sounds sensational. And that voice and, as I said, speaking voice and singing voice. Um, and it's, I think it's used very well. There's a lot of music in the film, but it's, it's not overly used. It's kind of brought in at good, good times. Um, there's also, I'd forgotten actually, because I've probably only seen this film four times, I think, and I've seen it last, saw it last night. I'd forgotten how much background there was to the sort of meat and potatoes, which is really the immigration, 71 to 73. There was a lot before that, which I appreciated. Um, it's, <laughs> I was going to get to this at the end, but I might as well say it now. It, it, it's, it's very much the Coleman. It is the Coleman version. <laughs> it's, uh, there's a couple of quotes here, which I hope we'll get to, which I, I found rather naive. Um, something about, you know, oh, Nixon was the only president who was very, who had a lot of criminality or something like that. Anyway, we'll get there. Um, so that would be my criticism. It is the mainstream version of it. So, um, general impressions. Uh, I agree with you about the music. Uh, it, um, I mean, I've heard all these songs a million, million times, but it was nice to have that contextualization. R really, you know, this this music isn't something floating on the clouds. It was created in a specific time, in a specific historical moment, and it was speaking to that moment and reflecting that moment. And you get that sense. And I think you're right. It's used quite tastefully um, in this documentary. Um Yes, overall, uh, I think it's a it's well told. I, it keeps your attention and it keeps moving along, and it, it brings up, you know, some important points. And as the type of people that you would expect commenting on it, including Gore Vidal. In fact, I, I'm going to confess, I only watched this in preparation for our discussion, so I didn't I, I I didn't even know what year this was from or anything. And when Gore Vidal popped up, I'm like, oh, this is old because <laughs> he's dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I I was a bit surprised at some of that, but but. It it makes the points. It makes them well. And as and you're right that it builds up to the what is the meat and potatoes, I suppose. But it's necessary background, I think, to understand what was happening because we run the risk. Obviously, I don't want to presume. I'm going to assume we're roughly similar ages. At any rate, I was not born. I was not alive when this was going on. So I don't want to come and sit here and say, you know, I know about the early 70s, man, and this is what was going on. I don't want to pronounce on that. I want to be, um, I, I want to understand that in its context and see it in that light. And I think this helps to at least fill in some of that context for people who were not there at the time. Mm. I saw your date of birth on Skype, yes, or your year of birth. <laughs> yeah. I'm a few years older than you. Okay, all right, all right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so let's get into it. So um, it actually starts at the Sinclair rally in 71. But if you don't mind, we'll get to that. We'll go chronologically, more or less. So um, 
Yeah, you mentioned Gore Vidal. is a fantastic quote. Anyone who sings about love, harmony, and life is dangerous to someone singing about death and killing and subduing. That was one of the many great quotes. Um, so it kind of starts, I suppose, with 66, with the bigger, bigger than Jesus. And the point I wanted to make, really, is that I'm sure you find the same. I'm, I'm still blown away by the timescale, the, the, the small timescale of all these changes. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen uh, the, the, the press conference at JFK Airport in 1964. You know, oh, can you sing something? No, we need money first, all that. It's very, very innocuous. It's very cheeky chappy. And then just two years later, you know, the atmosphere and some of those 66 press conferences, obviously because of Bigger Than Jesus, is so different. And he's talking about Vietnam. And um, I know you have your reservation with Chomsky, and I totally understand, but Chomsky's in this as well. And he's made the point in other ones that, in fact, the Vietnam anti-war movement was very slow, you know, because, I mean, you could argue Vietnam had been going on since the 19th century, but let's say since the 50s, the French uh, so it was actually very slow, and I, I don't know how many people in '66 were talking, speaking out against Vietnam. But what's your impression of John Lennon at that time and some of the stuff he said, including "Bigger Than Jesus"? Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah, at the time scale, it really is like this foreshortening of of t- historical moment because the the scope and scale of the change throughout the 1960s from early to late is it, it it's difficult for me to even conceptualize. That the same band that was doing I Want to Hold Your Hand was two years later doing Tomorrow Never Knows. Like, that will never not blow my mind. That's... How? How how does that happen? I cannot relate that to anything I have seen in my lifetime, musically speaking. And I think, again, that is just one aspect of the entire cultural change that was going on at the time that was really encapsulated um, in that political movement. Obviously, the anti-war movement, huge, incredibly consciousness-shaping part of the late 60s, early 70s that obviously John John and Yoko definitely had a a major part in. Um, So, uh, yeah, I think in order to understand that time period, we have to understand that everything was fracturing at that time. And you go from the naivety or the innocence of the early 60s to the uh, essentially Civil War type type actions that are taking place and the 68 riots and all of that truly revolution stuff in five years or so that is crazy and clearly i mean the beatles were a part of that not only in reflecting that but also feeding into that energy and clearly the musical phenomenon that was happening in the 1960s was part of the cultural moment that was happening the beatles could not avoid that and the telling quote that i thought in this documentary was um when when John is uh, saying something to the effect of, well, we ha- you can't not talk about this. It's going on right now. If unless you're a monk, oh, sorry, apologize uh, to any monks out uh, there or anything. Yeah. Uh, it, that was a. I mean, that's a that's a telling quote. It, at that time, it was becoming difficult not to speak about it, at least for the youth. And I think that's where you. There's definitely a generation gap thing that's going on between what. The Beatles had grown up with as children what they had seen as the entertainment business. It was clearly becoming something different, and it was speaking to an audience more directly, a, a, a different generation audience that had different expectations. They were starting to form that. And that's another thing that I wanted to say about um, John becoming more of a political 
figure or activist or something, again, it's easy for someone of my age to see that through the prism of what came after, the pale reflections of that. Like, and I don't want to start any fights, but Bono, Bono's political activism, I am not a huge Bono fan. So, uh, you know, from my perspective, that's what I grew up with as a young person looking at a political rock star that, you know, it's Bono. And then to see that sort of jaded, oh, that's someone who's using the press from this clearly. And, you know, I'm not sure he's really into these. And then transferring that onto John Lennon, who in many ways was the template for that. I think certainly at least an earlier iteration. I don't know if there'd been that sort of an entertainer figure venturing into politics. They were spearheading that, um, that phenomenon in some way at that time. So everyone was just kind of stumbling into this. And I don't think anyone knew exactly how this was going to play out. So you can, I, you definitely see those moments. The Beatles, John specifically, trying to needle and puncture and in his humorous way, sort of undermine the system, but not too far. And then how far can I go? And I think you see that in the 60s, that sort of development of how far do I take this? And where, you know, where, where, where is that comfortable or not comfortable, but at least how far can I push this before I start to get death threats and other things? Yeah, without jeopardizing the career as well. Because I think I think in 66, there were, there were heated discussions behind the scenes between Epstein and John Lennon about what we can say. I think it was John and George wanted to speak out. Paul and Ringo, I don't think we're too bothered, particularly. Um, and then the bigger than Jesus, just, just for anyone who doesn't know, they'll obviously know he said it, but it was a very innocuous quote. Maureen Cleave went around his house he was going through a period where he was very, very isolated. He was getting stoned, probably stoned all the time and didn't really know what time of day it was, waking up at three in the afternoon. And just of the many, many things that he said in that interview, he just happened to say, you know, Christianity will shrink, etc. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. And then it was obviously used um, uh, in, uh, bizarrely, in like a teen magazine. I didn't really understand it's like, I don't know, when I was growing up, it was probably Smash Hits or something like that. <laughs> One of those magazines. It was like, what was it doing there in the first place? Anyway. Um, that was also, I think, part of the cultural um, translation that was going on. Because that was an English interview for an English, whatever it was, in the English press standard. that got printed in America, out of context, obviously, and very, very different culture and very different understanding of what those where those words were coming from or what they meant yeah and obviously i guess in england in the 60s there was already the um religion or religious faith was was dropping off i mean for sure that's the point he was making really um so uh i'm just gonna go the next couple of years he has such an interesting trajectory because he so he's sort of jaded rock star anti-vietnam and then it's flower power the next year all we need is love then the year after that is revolution because the, th- the thing about revolution is that, uh, you know, count me out, count me in. Again, that, that's a very, I equate it to, you know, Strawberry Fields. I think, uh, yes, I mean, he's trying to he's trying to sing like people think, you know, and be honest and say, well, I don't know. And like, even today, like in the media, you know, I mean, I, I, could, I don't have a TV. I barely watch mainstream media at all. I can't stomach more than about five minutes. But it, the idea that you don't know anything is like, what? You know, it's all got to be. I know this, this is the truth. And he's actually saying, I don't know. But he also said in revolution, um, it's a, rev- a personal, a revolution of personal liberation. Um, I'm not bringing to, line, to mind the lines. Um, if you want money for people with minds that hate, 
But it's to do with like um, you need a, a revolution in your head, <laughs> so to speak. Mm. That's a good book, isn't it? <laughs> and then he said this thing in 68. I'm sure you've seen this. Our society is run by insane people for insane objectives. That's why I think if John Lennon was alive now, he would be quite allied with the uh, alternative movement. I, I'm sure he would, in fact, because well, that's, that's a also that's a very you know we should say. be also careful about trying to project earlier versions of John into whatever contemporary form he would have taken. Um, I think people do that to their sometimes to their detriment. I uh, was just reading through an interesting book. I don't know if you have it, but maybe you should. It's called Lennon on Lennon: Conversations with John Lennon, edited, edited by Jeff Berger. And in this, it's a, it's a sort of a compendium of different interviews that he gave at different points of his career. And in the introduction, um, Berger writes, To borrow an album title from the late, great ro- uh, the late rock great Lou Reed, Lennon was Growing Up in Public, which may help to explain why we witnessed such dramatic shifts in his views over time. In 1971, he dismissed his Beatles years in a conversation with left-wing activist Tariq Ali, saying, It was complete oppression. I mean, we had to go through humiliation upon humiliation with the middle classes. I found I was having continually to please the sort of people I'd always hated when I was a child. But a few years later, he was looking back fondly on the Beatles era and speaking critically of Ali and other political activists. Uh, That radicalism was phony, really, because it was out of guilt, he told Newsweek's Barbara Graustark a few months before his death. Being a chameleon, I I became whoever I was with. When you stop and think, what the hell was I doing fighting the American government just because Jerry Rubin couldn't get what he always wanted? A nice, cushy job. And that... That 1980 yeah. John Lennon is not the John Lennon you hear about. I know, I know there are hardcore left activists to this day still think of John as Imagine John and Revolution John and political activist John, Tariq Ali allied John. Tariq Ali is in the U.S. versus John Lennon, right? Promoting yes. the Coleman version of Lennon. But yeah. whoa, whoa, what's this in 1980 where he's denigrating all of that and saying that he was just a chameleon, it was all phony? You know, I mean, again, who who knows how John would have developed in the 1980s, mm. let alone 90s, let alone 2000s, let alone 2010s, let alone where he'd be up in 2021. The only thing I know about that is I have no idea exactly what he'd be doing right now. Well, you saw the, that wonderful film yesterday. Uh, fantastic film. <laughs> you see did you see my review? No, no. <laughs> I fucking savaged that film. I hated that film. Ah, horrible. Um, what's I going to say? Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, there's contradictions. Um, I see. I don't. I don't buy that. That 1980. I don't buy that either. The thing that he said. Oh, you know, what was I doing? Because I, I think he was. I think he was valid, and a lot of the stuff he said at the bedding. I think he's absolutely killer. You know, just just these pointed looks at our society. Um, I take your point. I would say that I think even in a life as contradictory as his, there are certain fundamentals. And I discovered, I think through Mark Lewison, and you'll be interested in this, that John Lennon read 1984 and Brave New World as a kid. And we know he was advanced because he learned to read through the the Liverpool paper, thanks to his uncle. So I think I think he says in this documentary, doesn't it? You know, I've always been a rebel. I, I think he was truly a rebel. And yes, he would have mellowed. He probably was mellowing already by 1980. But I still think there would still be that. I still think there'd be that revolutionary. My armchair surf. psychology reading, if I may God. be so bold. I, you know, what do I know? But my armchair psychology. John loved to needle and to zig when people want him to zag. He loved to sort of go into some totally different direction. 
I think that was more of what was his impetus. And when he went in a direction, he went for it. Like, he didn't hold back. And as you say, the stuff he was saying in the bed in and other things, on point. Like, yeah, he was truly that person in that moment. But then, you know, okay, now I'm going this way. I, I that's, that's my image of John, someone who's constantly, restlessly searching for something else. Yeah, I think, I think Bob Dylan's very similar. In fact, even more so. In fact, when I did the Lennon more and similar. Dylan, sh- well, more, no, more um, wanting to zig when others want him to zag. Yeah. yeah. But no, when we did the Lennon and Dylan show, we actually concluded just during the talk that they probably were quite similar. And that's why they had a bit of distance mm. through the mm. years. They could recognize that in each yeah. other. Yeah. Um, yeah. They talk about, uh, actually, I did want to talk to you about Viet- the Vietnam War. In fact, uh, difficult to, to get into it here in limited time, but um they say in it, oh, Vietnam was an unpopular war. And interesting, they said that there was no catalyzing event. And what popped into my head was like a new poll. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help it. It just popped into my head. Um, I wonder if your listeners will know that reference. Yeah, we should tell them, yeah. Um, yeah, the project for the New American Century, they, they wrote a, a paper about a year before 9-11. And they said, can you give us the quote? So Rebuilding America's Defenses is the name of the paper. It was uh, from the Project for a New American Century, which was formed in 1997. The Rebuilding America's Defenses was released in 2000. And it was about the idea of how to create, you know, essentially uh, to further Pax Americana into the 21st century. We want to make another century of American imperial dominance. How can we do this? And they're talking about the different transformations that they could do to the military um, to go into this new era, including such things as race-specific bioweapons. We got to make them politically viable. They were talking about it in their documents, not me, it's them, Dick Cheney and others. But um, And in that document, it says that this transformation would not be possible without a new catalyzing catastrophic event like a new Pearl Harbor. So, Mm. And then almost as soon as 9-11 happened, people were calling it who called it the new Pearl Harbor? Was it just around uh, the media? Yeah, uh, I should definitely know that. I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head, but I know that uh, in his confirmation hearings, or his yeah, I think his confirmation hearings for Defense Secretary Donald. Uh, so obviously, the year prior, December two thousand, January two thousand one, whenever he was going through that process, he was talking about this book I've been reading about Pearl Harbor and how you know they were taken by surprise and had to go in a completely different direction, and I thought. And he kept going on about Pearl Harbor and was also obviously in the air because what was released in the summer of 2001, Pearl Harbor. Mm. Um, yeah. So it was definitely in the cultural zeitgeist. And I don't I don't know. I don't have the exact reference of who exactly said that first, but it was definitely said a lot in the days and weeks following. Oh, and the film Pearl Harbor came out in summer 2001. Ah, I don't yeah, I've got my chronology correct. Let me make sure mm. of that before I say it. But uh, yeah, okay. I think so. <laughs> um, why are you doing that all I was going to say was it, it still blows my mind really about the Vietnam War is about how on mainstream television we were just shown all these images and you know they talk about Vietnam syndrome and all this stuff about trying to forget the Vietnam War uh, would you agree with me that what they actually learned from the Vietnam War was not to show any blood on the TV because Iraq was incredibly bloodless, wasn't it? You saw the explosions on the first night, but you never saw, I mean, occasionally perhaps. Do you not? Do you think that's what they learned really from Vietnam? Well, it's funny that you mention him by name because, of course, I am not a Chomsky fan, as people who know my work might know. But, I mean, 
Manufacturing Consent is an incredibly important book. And uh, I'm just getting, I'm rereading it. I haven't read it for a number of years, but I'm rereading it. Um, And I was just getting to the point about Vietnam and pre pre 68 pre Tet offensive they're making the point that essentially that it was almost completely bloodless with one exception that they could point to it was all sanitized but after Tet offensive suddenly there was a different narrative that was allowed into the mainstream media narrative that they say reflect a a, diff- a, a split within the establishment itself and so there was some some more graphic images some more realistic reporting that was allowed post-Tet Offensive that did sort of shift and open up that anti-war conversation on a sort of mainstream level. But yeah, pre-Tet pre Offensive, it was it was extremely sanitized. And, and they go into the specific examples of that, specific editors and the others who uh, made sure that any graphic images would be edited out of broadcasts. Because oh, what I'm saying is then they learned to do that again. That's what I'm saying with Iraq. Oh, right. So, yeah, I think yeah, yeah that obviously I think that, well, I say obviously, it's obvious from my perspective. I think the lesson of that is, yeah, if you have a bloodless, you know, sanitized Disney version of war, then you can sell exactly. it to the public a lot easier. Yeah. It's easy to desensitize them for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Some of the stuff I liked in the film, actually, um, I, do, I do want to talk to you about John and Yoko because you, you mentioned you know, John Yoko Inc., the brand and i agree with you um i i do believe though that i think in the beginning i think their relationship was was genuine um there's a great quote john says i had this dream of falling in love with an artist woman um quite chilling in fact because some of the john lennon quotes were actually from the very last day of his life he did an interview about five hours before he was killed you know i'm sure you know that with newsweek and i recognize his voice from those and, and some of them are actually in this film which always chills me a little bit um, but so, and there's actually a nice bit where Yoko's talking about the bedding and after all the reporters had left, they were, they were looking out the window at a full moon or something like that. And, you know, people, you can, you can pour scorn on that and say, you know, she's promoting an image, but what, what do you think of their relationship initially? Like the first couple of years or I think it was genuine. Well, okay. Again, armchair psychologist, you know, take it for what it's worth. This is my opinion and perspective based on the limited knowledge that any of us have to these events. But I agree. I think in the beginning, John totally fell 100%. As we say, when he gets into something, he gets into something. I think he was very, very much in love with Yoko. I don't know if Yoko was ever really in love with John. Uh, Maybe she was. How do I know? But it just... Mm. I am very much more cynical about Yoko's um, intentions in that relationship and how she came into it. I'm not meaning to start any fights on your podcast, but no, no, I, I just, what's the story that Paul doesn't say anymore about how she came to him first Mm. and then went to John, right? But, oh, he doesn't say that anymore. Uh, No, we don't Mm. talk about that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Seems a bit cynical. But anyway, um, no, I agree that John, I think, was very much committed to that relationship at the beginning. Mm. And the thing about them as well, I think I just I mentioned it on one of the shows I just put out. They're so visually striking, you know, because a, a lot of I think I was saying this to somebody, a lot of couples, they, they often start to look alike. You know, that, that can happen. But those two, you know, 69 with the long hair and they did they did they did. They were incredibly 
striking and visually compelling. The bed-in is just the perfect iconography. Or they're in the white pajamas in the mm. room, the bright sunlit room. It's just, it's the perfect, yeah, yeah that's that's a thing to build a brand on, sure, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, some of the stuff he, he said around then, just consulting my notes here. Um, once they've got you violent, they know how to handle you. And uh, yeah, he said these amazingly uh, pointed things. And then someone called David Fenton, some of the talking heads I didn't actually know, said photographer and activist. He said the bedding was the conscious use of one's myth to project a political and social poetic goal, which I love. And then is the idea of using the mass media to talk against the establishment, which I think is fantastic. And we know, I think we know John Lennon as well was very into advertising uh, and slogans and so mm. forth. Yeah. Um, and it was his idea to take the war is over thing as a billboard, right? Yoko was saying that in this, right? So, um, you know, it's his idea to take this on a bigger, or was that something else I was watching? Anyway, <laughs> at some point, Yoko said that. And uh, yeah, I think he definitely had that sense of, advertising and how it gets into people and he was a good sloganeer and give peace a chance whatever you think of that song it is absolutely drilled into the head of everyone who ever hears that phrase and you know exactly and if people started singing it in a big group you'd start singing along it's it's the perfect slogan absolutely it was amazing and that's i think where i have to check my cynicism sitting in 2021 looking at the way that you know, eventually people learned from the example that John and Yoko were setting back in the day how to manipulate and use the press and uh, for their own purposes. And hey, look at me, I'm a political activist by my record. Um, you know, it's easy to be cynical from that uh, about that in 2021. But at the time, it really was. They were pioneering a new territory there. I keep in mind, I mean, in the 60s, certainly by the end of the 1960s, the idea of an aging rock star was, I mean, that that didn't exist. There was, no, you're an entertainer. You you entertain the kids with whatever the latest fad is for a couple of years. And then you're on, you know, that's it. That's your life, life, life uh, cycle. And you move on to something else. But now we have this concept of these aging rock stars who have this mass audience and they're trying to figure out how to use the mass media. It was, yeah, there's a lot going on there that it's, again, it's easy for us knowing how the story turns out to read it, read back into it um, in a cynical way or to, you know, sort of see the, the, the connecting dots. But at the time, it was all brand new territory. Another little bit of a red flag in this documentary that sort of marked it out, the, the mainstream version, this idea that John and Yoko were naive and that when they arrived mm. in New York, what's yeah. the quote? Um, they were in the hands of two political masters. Yeah. I'm sure there's some truth to that, but uh, it's just too simple. It's yeah. just too... I picked up John on that Yoko too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cause like, exactly, because it does completely absolve them. They were just naive innocents. They just yeah. cared about peace, and they got caught it. in this web of these crazy political activists. And it's a nice way of sort of, yeah, completely absolving them of anything that may have been happening. Um, yeah. Again, I see that as John and Yoko Inc. moving yeah, in. Well, that's, that's what happens with these documentaries. I think, I think when when they're going for sort of more mass appeal, like a commercial documentary, what what you find is things just tend to get tied up in quite a neat little bow. You know, yeah. as the end credits yeah. roll, and don't worry, yeah. everything's fine. Everyone. Yeah, <laughs> I noticed that because of course they talk about yeah. oh, and Sean and came, and then they were all yeah, happy, yeah. and then boom, yeah, and then yeah. of course you get the murder scene and. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, it, it, it's, it's so cookie cutter for, for people like you and me who have seen a hundred documentaries and things on this. We know, we know the story. So we're looking at the way they're telling the story rather than what's being told. It's hard for me to look at this as someone who didn't know the story and wasn't like, didn't know all of these quotes and where they come from and all the footage and everything. Um, Imagine watching this with fresh eyes, not knowing all of this. I guess it would be a compelling way to tell the story, but we see those kind of red flags. Yeah, just a few red flags of this. Yes, yes, yes. Um, there's uh, quite a few quotes from, uh, I always found this fascinating, when he was on Dick Cavett the first time, and he's wearing the army jacket. Um, happened to be September 11th, strangely enough. September 11th, 1971. Um, he says, we're revolutionary artists. I'm an artist first and a politician second. It's funny that he even called himself a politician. That's hilarious. And then he said at some point, I want to cool down the revolution, not heat it up. And he said Nixon should declare peace. That's an interesting idea. I like that. I love Again, that. Again, a great slogan. I love that. I, I'm sure yeah. I've seen that interview, but I never picked up on that phrase. But as soon as I heard that, I'm like, how have I never heard that before? Of course, yeah. declare peace. That's yeah. That should be a sl- advertising slogan for if there is an anti-war movement that exists anymore. I don't know. But that should be the slogan, shouldn't it? Yeah, declare peace. And is it is it a thing to wear army jackets sort of ironically? It seems incredibly, incredibly strange that he's on there wearing an army jacket. Yeah. Not, not an army jacket, an army style, you know. Yeah, army yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. And I, I associate <laughs> yeah. that with him because that's the only, that's the only example I can think of off the top of my head of that but yeah, yeah. I, but when i see that i definitely i mean it's obviously ironic it must i don't be, know yeah. yeah it is i've never really stopped to question that but he was wasn't he wearing that in the um uh was it madison square garden concert? oh yeah i think he, no he was you're right i yeah. think he was because there were two concerts i think he wore it at one of them yeah yeah I mean, they do look great. I mean, I think those army... Yeah, it suits <laughs> him great. so well. <laughs> isn't that weird? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is strange, isn't it? Um, okay. Um, another quote I quite like. When people are creative geniuses, you have to cut them some slack. And I don't use the word genius too much, but I, I get what he means. You know, you don't get the magic of John Lennon without all the other stuff, you know? Um, and then we get Give Peace a Chance. Um Oh, hey, I've got a nice question for you here. Uh, Tommy Smothers was on the Give Peace a Chance recording, as you know. And he said, is it naive to think we can have peace and change the world? Now, I would argue, James, that you that you are definitely trying to change the world with your channel. So uh, is it naive, <laughs> number one? Uh, what's, what's the best approach, whether it's 1969 mm. or 2021? How do you create change? Yeah. Uh, hey, if I knew the answer to that... We would have a changed world, wouldn't we? So clearly, I can't answer this definitively. Is it naive? It very well could be. Um, I don't think of, I don't think of myself as a political activist per se. I don't think that's that's the way I would contextualize what I do. But I I do want to change people's perceptions at any rate. But what is the ultimate purpose of that? I don't think necessarily it isn't a consequentialist endeavor that I'm engaged in. I'm doing this because I want. X, Y, Z to happen. X, Y, Z. We're, I'm Canadian, you're English. Why am I saying Z? Anyway, <laughs> I don't want X, Y, Z to happen. Therefore, I'm going to... I, I'm more interested in, I, I guess, just understanding and living in truth. And I know mm. truth, you know, even that is a 
controversial term and what does I get it mean what you and am I sitting on some high cloud, you know, knowing everything? No, of course not. But but I that's authentically is what you're talking about. Exactly. It's more about essentialism than it is about some sort of consequentialist quest. You know, I'm going to achieve X, Y, and Z or anything. No, 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 no. Um, so that was question part one of the question. Part two of the question. Best uh, way to best do that. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I generally a- attack that question by throwing it back at the person. Why? Why is there one? I mean, why do we have to pick one? I say any, any, and every vector at which you think you can get information out or change people's perception or you know do it i mean and and also i think that re- that's re- more reflective of the reality that different people have different styles of uh, uh, of understanding information of conveying information of of acting in the world there's different types of people and Whatever type of person you are and however it is that you express what you're trying to express, there will be someone out there who responds to that and resonates with that. And, hey, I get that. And there will be someone out there who goes, I don't don't like you. I don't like your face. I don't like the way you pronounce the word uh, corollary. (laughs) Corollary. (laughs) (laughs) I get that a lot in my podcast. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, uh, everyone just has to authentically, I think, authentically be themselves, express themselves in the way that they will. And that will correspond to some people, that won't to other people. So when John gets in the, is in bed talking about bed piece, hair piece, whatever, absolutely that is going to turn some people off. And that's going to be ridiculous and nonsensical. It's going to, other people are going to go, hey, that's cool. I like that. So, so good. Excellent. Okay. Everybody try to convey what you want in the way that you want. Don't. And, and don't try to limit it, oh, what's the best strategic way to do this? And how can I change myself to more accurate, you know, to get a bigger following or something like that? I, 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 I tend to believe that people have inner BS detectors. And you can tell when someone is trying to strategize, okay, guys, let's find the best way to do this. And, you know, let's, let's change our message so that it, it will be more acceptable to the mainstream or something. Uh, mm. I don't know. I don't, I'm very cynical about that kind of approach. Right. I see. I see. But with the bedding, again, just to make a general comment, I think they knew what they were doing. I, I don't think, I don't think there was, I mean, you know, they're probably a little bit, um, I don't know. When I spoke to Dan Richter, he said, you know, John did smoke quite a lot of weed. Like there was generally, it was always around his house and that's going to perhaps, I don't know. I don't want to generalize, but yeah, it's going to get you, you maybe your mind racing a bit ahead of yourself or whatever. But I think he actually says on this documentary in one of the interviews, he, he said, we spent months thinking about this and we decided, you know, all pros and cons all considered this was the best thing we could do, you know? And, um, like I say, he used his position very well. Um, apparently give peace a chance. There was a little clip of this was sang by, I mean, they say a million in the documentary. I, I always heard half a million. I mean, obviously not going to be counting them. <laughs> An anti-war rally in Washington. And the story is that they were actually shouting up to Nixon and Nixon was crying. I don't know if there's any truth to that. You ever heard that? Yeah, who knows? I don't know if I've heard the crying story, but yeah, yeah everything yeah. else. Yeah. But it was actually, it was written, according to John, as an alternative to We Shall Overcome, wasn't it? And uh, apparently, I think Pete Seeger turned up at that rally, but he didn't know the song. He's like, oh, what's this song everybody's singing? He's like, what? Can that be true? I don't know. But uh, it was actually an author who was on the show who'd researched, who did a, a book about 1969. He said that apparently. That's what Pete <laughs> Seeker said. 
oh, that's a nice song. I'll join in. But uh, yeah, then we get the poster event in the billboards. I mean, I, I think it's fantastic. War is over if you want it. You know, yeah. and obviously, Perfect advertising slogan. It's a great way. Yeah. We're still talking about it to this day. Um, and you could argue, well, that's only because it's John. It's not because it was that interesting or creative. It's just, but even so, it's still, as you say, it's the, it's a great way for him to use that platform. To this day, 50 years later, we're still talking about it. Yeah. But it's planting an idea that I think people still haven't really necessarily picked up on mm. uh, about, you know, you could say power to the people. You could say, oh, it's a bit of a sort of empty slogan. I like that song, by the way. Um, yeah. But I do too. It, it's it's kind of true. <laughs> I mean, it is. Um, then we get Kent State. We, we get sort of G. Can you just tell me uh, what role did G. Gordon Liddy play in the, in the Nixon? Oh, God. oh yeah. Administration? <laughs> You're going to ask he's, me about the, the intricacies bad. of the Nixon administration and Watergate, which is probably something I actually should be able to expound on a great length. But I did not prepare that level of research for a conversation. No, that's okay. I just wonder what. Do you know what his actual title was? Oh, what was his yeah. Role? Excellent question. And again, I do not know that off the top of my head now. No, no problem. No problem. Um, well, G. Gordon Liddy sort of appears as he's sort of the bad guy in the documentary. You know, you you always need a bad guy. And he comes up with a couple of killer killer quotes about Kent State. He said, oh, you know, the National Guard was armed. What do you think was going to happen? And, he, and he, he talks about he went to a Vietnam War rally and lit his cigar from the candle to one of the protesters. Yeah. So he's very much presented. Yeah, he's the I mean, imagine guy. this. If for nothing, <laughs> no other reason, watching this documentary, you got to see G. Gordon Liddy and Noam Chomsky and Gore Vidal and Tariq Ali. <laughs> like, what, a, what an interesting cast, huh? Yeah, it is quite an interesting cast, yeah. And there's some good stuff about Hoover. They use the FBI as a political police force. Uh, this, this is very funny. Uh, <laughs> anyone off message would get a, an FBI probe. Guess who that came from? Geraldo Rivera. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I wonder if he's ever gone off message at Fox and got told. <laughs> <laughs> like when he uh, did that segment about the uh, the soldiers in Afghanistan guarding the poppy fields. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, that was, you remember that? Yes. Yeah. Well, of course, he, he showed uh, the Zapruder film to the American yeah, exactly. public. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good Night yeah. America, wasn't it? I was watching that recently. Hmm. I was watching that. And again, uh, one of the themes of I wanted to get to a bit later was um, how open things seem then. Because... On primetime TV, he has a thing where they're having a debate about the JFK assassination, and it's pretty much 50-50 in terms of the opportunities given to each side. Um, but that's always funny when I see Gerardo Rivera. Yeah, yeah. We, like, well, I, yeah. yeah. Being my age, I do not take him seriously at all, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He was definitely in that mix in the early 70s, right? He introduced yeah, I, them on stage at something i can't remember which performance he was involved in the 1972 concert which was actually john lennon's only ever full-length right. solo concert right. yeah great concert by the way um um yeah i remember gerardo rivera when when a uh, bin laden uh, died uh he do you remember he, he had like a he had like an earpiece he was going hey i've just heard he's dead and he's and he started shouting the bum is dead the bum is dead and then he had all these people in the background go, like anyway. I don't remember that at all. No, anyway, that's my Geraldo recollection. Yeah, <laughs> um, so John and Yoko moved to New York, September 71. Again, this, this film is so full of great quotes. And he says, oh, you know, he moved to the center 
of the world you know if i'd if he'd been around in roman times he'd have moved to rome he's that kind of person you know you want to be in the middle of the action i i've used um, get... that i've used that quote before because sometimes i people have asked me when I, they're interviewing me you know why do you talk so much about american politics i'm like well <laughs> because you know we're living in roman times you talk about rome if you're living in pax americana times you talk about america absolutely yeah yeah um and then uh, how much have you seen of when John and Yoko were on the Mike Douglas show and they hosted it for a week? You must have seen a fair amount of that. Yeah, I've seen clips of it. I've definitely, it, I don't even know if it exists. Can you watch the whole thing? No, uh, most of it, yeah, yeah. On okay. our, our favorite video, our favorite video channel. Mm. I, I really would recommend you watch that. It's fucking, excuse me. <laughs> it's utterly surreal. It, it's just the most wonderful surreal television because you mike douglas was basically i think it was sort of lunchtime or something and his audience was sort of i don't know middle-aged ladies old ladies i don't know exactly but, but he was like cuddly mike you know and he did his songs and he, he hilariously on the very first morning the the very first show the, the show opens with him singing michelle which is <laughs> and then he says uh he says, ah, oh, that was a great song, wasn't it? He says, yeah, yeah, Paul wrote most of that. I wrote the middle eight. And then Mike Douglas cringingly says, yeah, but that's the most difficult part, isn't it? And I'm like, oh, God, stop. But to have to have Bobby Seale and, and Jerry Rubin on the Mike Douglas show is just utterly surreal, as I said. Um, what's your impression of Bobby Seale? Do you know much about the Black, Black Panthers? I, I haven't done deep research into it, so I no, can't I really, either. I can't speak mm. to it in particular, mm. but certainly, I mean, in this, in this documentary, I was surprised. I don't know. I just, uh, it, the, obviously the public image and what was being portrayed at that time, very different than the ways sort of mm. comes across in the documentary. Yeah. Would, I don't know if you know this, but Jerry Rubin actually be, became a, uh, he became very, he was an entrepreneur and he was an early investor in Apple Electronics and actually became a multimillionaire. <laughs> I did and, not know that. Yeah. And then, um, uh, let me find this. And in the, the 1980s, him and Abby Hoffman, who was the other, the, they always get uh, mentioned together. They actually had a debate and Jerry Rubin, let me find this. Ah. Yeah. He had a 1980s debate with Abby Hoffman called Yuppie or Yippie. And Reuben was quoted as saying, wealth creation is the real American revolution. <laughs> so, hmm, a Lenin style about face there. Mm -hmm. That's quite amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and then uh, an FBI agent says, when John Lennon starts financing the people that the FBI want to put in jail, then it gets serious. So there was a point where they, they, they weren't taking him seriously, and they did. Now, another question for you. Tarek Ali, this is interesting. He says it's laughable that John Lennon was a threat, that he was just a singer. And my friend David Wills, Ghosty, I know you've heard some episodes with him. He said to me, I think it was off mic, he said maybe John Lennon wasn't as important as we think. So how much of a threat do you actually think he was in the early 70s? Yeah, well, uh, that's going to be a subjective thing. And again, I can't speak to the actual lived real experience of being there in the early 1970s in America to speak to the power, the cultural power of someone like that and what that really meant. But there are certain identifiable, quantifiable things that we can point to. The most obvious and the one that I think, in a sense, this all revolves around and, as you say, opens with is the John Sinclair Freedom Rally um, at the University of Michigan 
December 1971. They hold the Freedom Rally, obviously features John and Yoko, but many other performers as well. But And then coincidentally, he's released the next day. They overturn their own uh, verdict uh, about his probation or, or, or release or whatever, and he gets out of jail um, the next day. So, yeah, clearly that was, I mean, that was a real identifiable thing. So you have this rally and you can actually affect something that has real legal ramifications. And that supposedly was the thing that started all the talk about, okay, let's, on the in the run-up to the 1972 election, we're going to follow Nixon around. We're going to hold the um, uh, concert outside the Miami Republican National Convention. And I, I think, obviously enough, that is when you start to come on the radar of something like the FBI. And that's that corresponds with the documentary evidence that we have of this. Um, for your listeners who are interested in really getting into the details of this, I would highly recommend um, John Wiener's Give Me Some Truth, John Lennon and the FBI. Um, we have Absolutely, to give props yes, to John yes. Wiener. He's the reason we know about the FBI file. He spent 14 years in legal battles getting those files out of the FBI. For people who don't know, in early 1981, so just a few, few months after John's death, he uh, filed an original FOIA request for the FBI file on John Lennon. And he got sent, uh, it completely got denied. Uh, all, every document, every page completely denied on the grounds of national security. It will threaten national security if we reveal mm. that to national security. So in 1983, he started uh, a legal battle um, and was joined by the ACLU of Southern California. 14 years. Uh, it eventually mm. went to the Supreme Court. And finally, in 97, there was a settlement which saw the release of most of the records. Mm. Ten were mm. held back. And I don't know, but I, I I don't know if those records were ever released. I think there may be still some that mm. are still being held back. At any rate, um, the, and the, and uh, 100 pages or so of that, those documents are available in Give Me Some Truth. So I hope people uh, who are interested in this will check it out. But um, And that's identifiably how we know how this ultimately came on the radar of the Nixon administration in general from, of all people, Senator mm. Strom Thurmond, who wrote a yeah, memo yeah. on February 4th, 1972, uh, to Nixon's special assistant for Congress, as well as copied to the attorney general, uh, John Mitchell, that um, was right. saying, you know, I'm uh, attached, uh, find attached a memorandum to me from the staff of the internal security subcommittee of the judiciary committee. I am a member of, uh, blah, mm. blah, blah. Now, the interesting part of this document, and I wonder if you can shed some light on this. So okay. in this document, so this is from the Internal Security Subcommittee in February of 72. So just a couple of months after the Freedom Rally, the John Sinclair Freedom Rally, um, mm -hmm. this document gets floated passed ultimately to the Nixon White House. And it starts by saying, John Lennon, presently visiting in the United States, is a British citizen. He was a member of the former musical group known as the Beatles, quotation marks. <laughs> he has claimed he has claimed a date of birth of September 10th, 1940. And he is presently married to a Japanese citizen, one Yono, Yoko Ono. September 10th. We mm. know it's October 9th, right? Yeah. Have you ever heard that? No. Did they just, no. I mean, I, I wonder if they just got it wrong or if he said something on one of his forms or something i don't know anyway um the document goes on from there but basically um it ends uh the source felt that if lenin's visa is terminated it would be a strategy countermeasure 
And the source also noted the caution which must be taken with regard to the possible alienation of the so-called 18-year-old vote if Lenin is expelled from the country. Mm-hmm. So that was that was another thing that people might not remember about the historical context of the 72 election. It was the first election where 18-year-olds were allowed to vote, So um, as opposed yeah. to 21-year-olds. So it was a widening of the uh, the electorate and clearly skewing a little bit towards the younger crowd. And so the, in, in particular, 72 was particularly important for the possibility of some widespread mass media person who has a large youth following motivating mm. people in a certain way. So he definitely came on um, the radar at that point. So that was February 72. March 72, William Timmons, the um, Nixon's assistant, writes back to Strom to say, in connection with your previous inquiry concerning the former member of the Beatles, John Lennon, I thought you would be interested in learning that the Immigration and Naturalization Service has served notice on him that he is to leave the country no later than March 15th. Uh, You may be assured the information you previously furnished has been appropriately noted. So, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's clearly they're using that strategy countermeasure. And that's when the FBI files start and all the information starts to get accrued. All of this information that they have to keep back for national security reasons, right? Mm. Including humorously enough, there's one um, thing from the Lennon files that's this uh, informer's report. It's written by Julie Maynard. It was about a trip that she took to New York in March 1972, and she ends up visiting Rex Wiener's house for some party that he's throwing. This is the editor of the New York Ace, some underground, up-and-coming underground paper at the time. Um, And uh, one of the one of the things interjected in here is this story. There is a girl there at the party named Linda who acts as a servant for Tom and Frank. Linda's parrot interjects right on whenever the conversation gets rousing. Tom is trying to train it to say, eat shit whenever he argues with anyone. But the bird oh now God. says it to him whenever he sees him. The cage is surrounded by small objects that Tom has thrown in response. <laughs> this is part of the document that was completely blacked out when it was first um, sent, delivered to uh, John Wiener. And he had to fight for 14 years to get these vital details unshrouded <laughs> because of national security. Wow. Although more seriously, that um, that same report goes on to say that uh, John and Yoko were talking about the possibility of that 72 concert in Miami outside the Republican National Convention. But it goes on to say that um, uh, he, he, John, will also come to the convention if they are peaceful under the same terms. So he was, I mean, even the FBI knew it internally that he was saying he didn't want anything to do with violence at that time. Even their own informers were saying this. But again, they had to keep that that secret. Interestingly, uh, John Wiener also notes uh, in here at one point that some of the documents were held back because of concerns by a foreign intelligence agency. And that even, I think even as of 97, that foreign intelligence agency or the foreign government wouldn't allow the release of that information. So that's why some of the documents Mm. have been kept back. Wow, interesting. So I, I have a John Wiener book called Come Together. I think that one may be a sequel or is it the same one with a different title? Not sure. No, I think that's actually a, that's a sequel because I think he, he got access to more files. Ah, okay. But I'd also recommend the book will come together, presuming it's a different book. That's very, very good on this. Yeah. Yeah, some amazing stuff. As you said, the John Sinclair rally. Um, 
FBI agents writing down the lyrics and critiquing them. Mm. They, they said John Sinclair was somewhat repetitive, probably because that Garta, Garta, Garta. <laughs> it's just, it reminds me of, have you seen uh, Extras by the Ricky Gervais series? They're like yeah, sequels to The of Office. It, yeah, yeah it, there's like a, a sitcom within a sitcom, and he goes to a nightclub and he's trying to get a seat. And he goes, oh, do you know who I am? I, I did the, the sitcom. It's called When the Whistle Blows. And the bouncer starts critiquing the sitcom, saying, oh, I don't like that sitcom. It's uh, based on uh, silly wigs and catchphrases. <laughs> but to the idea of FBI now, agents. correct me if I'm wrong, but do I remember you saying that you didn't like that song precisely because of the repetitive? No, no, it was uh, someone I did a show with. Ah, uh, okay. All right. He put it, we did best and worst songs. Mm, it was right. Jason, yeah, Strange Brew. Very right. good podcast as well, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like that much. song, and I think that's I like great. It. The oh, rep- yeah. repetition, actually, it's enough for you to go, this is horrible, but you get the point. Like, I, I actually yeah, think it works it well. Your mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I mean, again, a lot of my listeners will already know, John Sinclair, the whole 10 for 2 thing, which I think was the name of the, the rally, wasn't it? Uh, so it was the name of the doc- documentary film or whatever that was released about Oh, was it? Yeah. So what it was, yeah. He got 10 years for selling two joints to an undercover, female undercover policewoman. Um, again, there's some, oh, I can't find the quotes. Yeah, he was declared a threat to society. Uh <laughs> Liddy, another killer quote. John Lennon was uh, stoned out of his mind most of the time, but he was a high-profile figure. So uh, that's why we took notice of him. Um and then we get, uh, I like this quote, uh, Paul Krasner uh, quotes John, if anything happens to me and Yoko, it's not an accident. And then they talk about the phone tapping. Paul Krasner worked with, have you ever come across May Brussel? Yep. Yep. Yeah, she's hours of it on YouTube. She's very, very compelling. Mm. And she did a couple of programs just after John was killed. Um, you know, I can't vouch for everything she says, but she she was a very much a full-time researcher. So. Yeah. Yeah, May M A E Brussel B R U S E L L for the listeners. Yeah, and Worth once again out. for people who do start listening, keep in mind she was doing this in the seventies, pre-internet. Yeah. You know, it's kind of yeah. it's easy to do this in two thousand twenty-one. Back then, I don't know how she must have had incredible amounts of files and papers, and I don't know how she yeah. organized it all. I mean, she read all the she read all the papers then. I think. And again, just a slightly debunk thing, debunk something. You and I uh, obviously talk about the limitations of mainstream media, but I think there's actually quite a lot of truth in there. It's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. hidden. So right. you think it's just yeah. hidden and not given any attention. So I think it's a misconception that it's not there. It's almost uh, a I, deficiency in our language because we just tend to, tend to say the word lie. But there's different forms of lying. And I think the most egregious, well, not the most egregious, but the most commonly used form of lying in the mainstream press would be lying by omission. It's about the context of the information. I would say most of what they print is technically accurately true. But Mm. what they don't print is perhaps the story in the same sense as we were talking about with Vietnam, what they won't show. Yeah, and there's a way of talking about something like it's not really that important. Like I remember when uh, when Ron Paul was going for president, and he, he'd get in these debates with Romney or whoever, and Ron Paul would be talking about this stuff like you know the the coup in Guatemala or something like that, or or in Iran. He'd put these things out, and then they'd say, "Oh yeah, we don't need a history lesson or something like that." So, also, it's to do with I think the media figure, you know, 
people get to know a certain media figure, like even Walter Cronkite, who's obviously reading the news, you know, the famous Hillary quote, quote, if we heard it from Walter, we knew it was true. Well, he's not actually making the news. He's just delivering it, you know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so as you said, the, this memo, it all kind of comes to a head in 72. Uh, March 72, he served with a deportation notice. Now, very interesting. This is another question for you. As you said, the 26th Amendment, July 1971, gave the vote to 18-year-olds, so 11 million new voters. So fast forward about six months, Nixon wins by an absolute landslide, and that's essentially really the end of John Lennon's activism. So is there any light you can shed? I mean, why with all those new voters? Why do you think, why do you think Nixon achieved that landslide? Is there any do we I know? Have- zero insight into that question i you know that's honestly a genuinely good question what was it in the zeitgeist at the time i'm going to admit i don't even know who he was running against in 72 well that was mcgovern mcgovern who was actually in in i like i knew he was in the film so yeah Yeah. but okay so i mean was mcgovern that hated (laughs) like that's the that's the only thing that i can think about is that he well he certainly wasn't the polarizing figure that or the uh, the rallying figure that youth would have gotten behind um i mean imagine if a bobby kennedy hadn't been assassinated i think we might have seen a very very different vote well, I think, yeah, oh, uh, that's another question. In 68, I suppose. let alone 72. Perhaps that's yeah. why he, yeah, that could be why he wasn't uh, there mm, in 72. Yeah. Because yeah. he Absolutely. had that charisma and he had, because yeah, I, th- I think with McGovern, you can kind of see on the documentaries the sort of charisma bypass happening yeah. there. Um, Not that I associate Nixon with charisma, but. No, but it's a kind of, uh, I don't know, I know what you mean, but it's a sort, it's a sort of almost a. It was an anti-charisma. There's something, yeah. something compelling about him, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Yeah. Um, Another book recommendation, Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson's book, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail in 72. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. really good book. Okay, um, right. Unfortunately, you have to go at a certain point. So um, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it sort of comes to a head in 72. Another great John quote, we're here to bring the boys home, but don't forget the machines. Uh, I don't even remember that quote. Yeah, I think it's in the film. Yeah. Um, so again, he's again, uh, having obviously studied him very closely during this podcast, there's little times where you'll hear a little quote and you think, well, John Lennon definitely knew something beyond, you know, watching his telly or whatever, you know, because there's even a, there's even an early, there's even a Beatles interview where they're talking about drugs and John Lennon says, well, I think they should ban sugar. <laughs> and I remember when you were on Life and Life Money, we were talking about sugar and how, how powerful it is and how people don't realize because we're all basically addicted to it. Anyway, that's another story. Um, so Leon Wilds sues the government for conspiracy to deny John Lennon access to the USA. Deep in his file is evidence of improper interference. Um, this is the quote, actually. Carl Bernstein, obviously Woodford, Woodward, and, Woodward and Bernstein, um, he said uh, there's probably a little bit of criminality in all uh, presidential administrations. Was there whole-scale criminality in any other presidency? No. Uh, the music that's playing at that time is Give Me Some Truth. Um, <laughs> How ironic. Again, uh, yeah, again, unfortunately, I mean, it's too much for us to really address mm. that fully. But uh, I think really, if someone does want to research, I think Obama is the one because um, I think his presidency was, was the time when I was first starting to pay attention 
thanks to you as well, other people as well around. Shameless self plug: Obama, a legacy of ashes. If people want to take a look at the alternative idea of Obama's presidency, I'll put that in the show notes because Obama. I just had a debate actually with an academic uh, who wrote a paper about conspiracy theories. Now I'll send it to you when it comes out. It's going to come out the next. Well, it will have come out by the time this is out. Um, and he and I was talking about Obama and the NDAA and all this stuff that this guy had not heard of and. Obama prosecuted more whistleblowers than anyone else. Yeah, he said, oh, it's interesting you called Obama because Obama's such a good guy. And uh, I put special attention on him, not saying he was worse than Trump or anything like that, but I think it's because that was the time I was paying attention. And it, there's just so many red flags with him. And Yeah, it's weird was, Bernstein, of all people, would say that because he did write CIA, the CIA and the media. Absolute landmark, iconic piece of reporting there. Truly blew the lid off of decades of CIA collaboration with mainstream press. And, you know, that starts to go down the proverbial rabbit hole into some really deep subjects. So for him to say, oh, it was just Nixon and no other president ever did anything. That's very strange. Uh, Strange, isn't it? I mean, you don't know whether they cherry pick that. Maybe they had a longer Mm. interview with him. Who the hell knows? Yeah. Um, Right, there's a couple of things I really want to talk about here. So anyway, the documentary ends. Again, as you said earlier, you get John and Sean. We get the, get the very mainstream-friendly Coleman version. Um, another great quote from John, time wounds all heals. And, uh, <laughs> who, the hell, who the hell knows what that means? I, but yeah. I still love and it, it was so, it's off the cuff. Like, yeah. yeah. <sighs> Brilliant. Yeah, he, he was very, very, he was gifted at that. There's no doubt. Whatever you think about the guy. He was fantastic. Could have been a comedian, probably. Mm. Um, I have a couple of questions for you, um, talking more about 70s politics in general. Um, do you think, yeah, this would be very controversial um, on another podcast, but do you think Watergate was actually that important if you compare it to some of the stuff that the church committee uncovered? So mm. MK Ultra, COINTELPRO, the illegal invasions of Cambodia and Laos, Operation Mockingbird. Do you think? Do you not think Watergate is maybe this sort of quite convenient sort of bloodless conspiracy? Is that your line of thinking as well? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, if you really more. want to get into it, and I haven't done the deep dive on Watergate, I should at some point. I really should. But from what I understand, Watergate the burglary was the burglary was intentionally bungled to so right. that it would be discovered, so that it would cause what it caused in order specifically to take down Nixon. Now, there's a lot. I don't think we can just broach that and (laughs) move along. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, And who, wait, who, who was leading the, the burglary team there? Who was one of the key White House plumbers? Mm. G. Gordon Liddy. Oh, right. The man Uh, who is talking in this documentary. Mm. It's a it's a rich tapestry, as James Evan Pilato yeah. of MediaMonarchy.com would say. Yeah, but it's just to, just to mention it as a sort of again a launch point if someone wants to look into that yeah. and that idea. And I should do just... a deep dive on it at some point because I I think you're right. It is um, it was a convenient mm. bloodless coup that didn't get into mm. the real details that did sort of eh, a little bit slipped out, as you say in the church committee hearings. Yeah, and it's the idea of, oh, you know, the system does work. You know, if there's anything mm. really important, we'll now, uncover it. Now, here's a point that I wanted to address with you specifically, because sure, sure. Um, this is all swirling around the 1970s. I mean, again, try to put yourself in the cultural context of all of this. 
and I think this, you can't separate all of these, the cultural and political and social context of what was happening. There's a reason, perhaps, why the 60s were the 60s and why you have Kennedy, Kennedy assassination, and then you have Ed Sullivan, which breaks the Beatles in America. And there's, you know, that that strange relation, the, the traumatic national national trauma of that that incident and then the release of this energetic joyful sound and and that getting tied up and then the craziness of the 60s politically and the assassinations and all of that and then Watergate and all of that and and uh you see that reflected in other cultural things that were going on and I know you're a film buff so I'm sure you mm. are familiar with the 70s conspiracy thriller genre the Parallax oh, View, The Conversation, uh, Capricorn One, Executive Action, all of the, those types of stories that were definitely part of the zeitgeist at the time. And then, you know, John Lennon finds himself in the midst of that, seeing, oh, I'm being tailed. Like, they're on me. They're tapping my phones. He's He, he knows it sounds crazy, but it's happening to me. Interesting. Yeah, and the, thing, and the thing about it, again, I think I even broached this on the film Gold, my third podcast, I can't remember. I think we were talking about Marathon Man, which is again another one of those firmly planted, fantastic film, in my opinion. Um, yeah, it's this idea that that's the paranoia era, but don't worry, everyone, all that's gone away. But I don't think any of that has gone away. Perhaps no. a couple of the specific programs have gone away, but I think yeah. this is what people. You obviously understand it, but well, yeah, people don't I, realize there was a change, right? Era. There was an innocence pre pre-early 60s, right? That clearly wasn't there in the 70s. And John was a part of that, and he was all, I mean, he was literally in it, he was literally experiencing it, he was projecting that. I mean, a lot of it swirls around, and it, you can't say what's, what he's, what he's absorbing from the zeitgeist, what he's experiencing in his life, and then what he's projecting and how that echoes back on him. It's, a, yeah. it's all swirling around there in the early 70s. And he, in fact, financed May Brussel as well. Did you know that? In 72, they met briefly did i know that and i think, he I, gave think I might have known that but i forgot it yeah yeah so he had his like i said a uh, question i was coming to but i might as well ask you now uh on this podcast we talk about you know what would john lennon have done if he'd lived and you know who the hell knows and i've posited a few ideas you know, might have worked with kurt cobain he might have been into hip-hop hopefully only listening rather than trying it himself uh, <laughs> well let's and people have come on the show and they've given interesting answers and they've said, oh, you know, he probably wouldn't have liked Trump. He would have allied with blah, blah, blah. But you did a video years ago about like this left and right and how in the end it really, it means virtually nothing. Yeah, there's some general ideas. But in fact, um, uh, Thaddeus Russell, who has become a huge fan of yours recently, I've been listening. I love Thaddeus Russell, but I actually heard him on a video being interviewed and someone someone said what do you actually mean when you say leftist and even thaddeus russell who seems a very very well researched he was actually struggling he was like well they're this or they're that and like does anyone actually know like and i when i had this conspiracy debate he was talking about right-wing conspiracy theories i said what does right-wing actually mean and he didn't know like you have a general idea okay white right wing is to do with free markets left wing is to do with you know the government sorting out problems but you know what does it really mean Almost nothing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think, mm. I think just going to say, I think John Lennon would have been firmly, I think John Lennon would have been using the internet not to sort of slag off Trump, but to, to maybe come out with stuff that, that you come out with in, in your research. These sort of, these looking from afar. So here's the left, here's the right, but I'm looking from very a wider perspective. 
Yeah. So um, I'd like to think so. <laughs> it's hmm. self-serving of me to say that, isn't it? Yeah. But I, I do. I mean, obviously, he had that intellectual restlessness and was not content with the being put in the box. And I think that is very much in line with the spirit of the Internet. And the fact that that, yeah, things have changed to the point where there's clearly a political realignment that's going on right now, that things, I mean, for example, yeah, in, in the American political context, now you have leftist Democrats who are now all on board with the FBI and the, you know, the, the intelligence agencies because they were against Trump and, you know, January 6th. And so we've got to be on board with the FBI and stuff. And it's just things that, yeah, are exactly 180 degrees from when John was doing this in the 70s. So what does that mean? You know, can we even apply those labels? Have the labels, they're clearly changing. Do they mean anything? So I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I think John, as an artist who was obviously very much in tune with what was going on and able to reflect that, I'm sure would be re- reflecting that in some manner. But Again, it's self-serving of me to say that, but uh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I mean, it would it would just be fascinating to know. Well, my fantasy is just the idea that he might have come on Glass Onion. And- <laughs> uh, well, you did mention, didn't you, that he was a Gary Knoll listener, right? Yes, yes. And yes, I have yes, been on definitely. Gary Knoll. In fact, I just got an email the other day to go on his show. Did again, you? So. Yeah, so you got a bit of a connection. Yeah, I found. I think I yeah I read somewhere. Yeah, because he, he obviously had quite progressive ideas about health as well. There's that great quote. I might even include it again because I just like including it as much as possible where he talks about, uh, you know, you want to talk about the drug problem, look what the government's putting in your food. And this is in, <laughs> this is in the 70s, for God's sake. And yes, I'm pretty sure he did listen to Gary Noel. Um, okay, final thing. Um, so I think, well, general recommendation of, of the film, I think, particularly if you don't know anything about it, it's a good sort of starter kit, but I would go a bit deeper. I would read the John Wiener books, as you said. Um, but, uh, yeah, final thing. Yeah, you were talking about how maybe the 70s was more cynical than the 60s. But at the same time, am I right in thinking that the church committee hearings and the Watergate hearings were basically on mainstream TV? Uh, I'm pretty sure that's right. And John Lennon was watching them as well. I think that would have been sort of post this activism period. I think yeah. it was mid seventies. It would have to be right. Mid seventies. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, but listen to this, like the church committee, um, the church committee investigated abuses by the CIA, the FBI, the NSA and the IRS and uncovered MK ultra drugging and torture of unwitting us citizens for mind control experiments, COINTELPRO pro surveillance and infiltration of American political and civil rights organizations and operation mockingbird. Listen carefully, everybody a systematic propaganda campaign with domestic and foreign journalists operating as CIA assets and dozens of U.S. news organizations providing cover for CIA activity. Now, my question If anyone you, in your audience, sorry, if anyone in your audience doesn't hmm. know about the church committee hearings, just on a lark, just type in heart attack gun and watch the video because there is right. a short video from the proceedings. So, yeah, we have this weapon that can produce a heart attack, which actually I was just rewatching Parallax View recently. And that's part uh, of it. Like, oh, we have this is. chemical that you can give and it'll look like a heart attack. Anyway, yeah, this is all this all the crazy tinfoil hat conspiracy. Yeah. stuff. Yeah, they were talking about it yeah. uh, you know, on televised broadcasts back in the 70s. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, a lot of my audience, because there's a lot of crossover with life and life only, I think from the messages I receive, I think people are very open to this idea. So 
and I always say to people, if you're outraged or anything, then then let's debate. <laughs> you know, then uh, hmm, tell me what left and right means. <laughs> but what my question to you is, where did we get? Was it the 80s where they, you know, the powers that be or shouldn't be, is that where they found a way where to close this sort of debate? Like, how did we get from the church committee being on? You know, it's almost like it being on, I don't know, ITV or Channel 4 in England. How did we get from there to what we have now? Was there a period where they found a way to shut this down? Have you any ideas about that? Uh, yes. I mean, if you want to look specifically at the church committee and what happened there and um, who they, uh, uh, oh, I'm going to blank on who was the CIA director at the time of the committee, but he was cooperating with the committee. He gets axed and who do they put in as director of the CIA? George, George H.W. Bush, who had never had any association with the CIA before, guys. <laughs> Honest, he had no association. Don't at all look into uh, Zapata Oil and the Cubans oh, yeah, in yeah. the 60s. And nothing, no, nothing to see there. Boo, boo, boo. Anyway, yeah, yeah so George <laughs> W. Uh, George H.W. Bush gets put in as executive director of the CIA, stops cooperating with the committee, and anyway, that was the ignominious, ignominious end of that particular committee. But yeah, ultimately... Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, again, it's all there. It's all part of the public record, but it's like it never happened or every time it gets addressed. And you will see like, oh, yeah, the the, the CIA really did do MK Ultra and, you know, drug people and all this kind of stuff. But it's always presented as a like, yeah, you know, this is crazy conspiracy, but actually it kind of did happen anyway. And every mm. single time they have to reintroduce it as if, oh yeah, it's crazy conspiracy theory, but actually this really did happen and we really did find it. Yeah, we know it happened by now. You don't have to continually address it as <laughs> it's yeah. not a crazy conspiracy. I know it's not a crazy conspiracy theory, but that's part of the mm. gaslighting. That's part of the way that this has actually been swept under the rug is by continually associating it with the crazy people who believe there's conspiracies happening. We know <laughs> conspiracies have happened. They've talked about them. Mm. They've been openly addressed. But yeah. it's like it's all in the past. And then in the 80s, you get Iran-Contra and those t televised hearings and all of that craziness that was coming out at that time. But again, that's all in the past now. And then in the 90s, oh, it was all about you know, a blowjob in the Clinton. Oval Office, yeah. right? That was the big conspiracy, yeah. right? And it just gets trivialized. Um, but clearly it continues. And th I think the real change was in terms of media, media coverage and mm. media consolidation, clearly that took place. Um, it, it was already functioning to some extent, obviously in the seventies, but it really, uh, hammered home in the eighties. And from that point, uh, to the zenith of the previous era of mass media, which I think culminated really around 9-11-2001. That was when everyone was getting their news from TV. That was the zenith of the TV era. The, the amount of media consolidation at that time, infamously, in America, for example, there were five or six corporations that controlled 95% yeah. of what everyone was seeing, hearing, and reading on a daily basis. That is yeah. how you cover up real um, malfeasance that's going on at the governmental level. The internet era changed that, obviously, and that's why we're even here talking to each other, is because the internet era has so fundamentally changed that paradigm. But I think we can see things are consolidating once again around a few select websites that now are becoming the internet in the minds of a lot of the public. Yeah, that's it. You're right. And our mutual friend, Julian, uh, we're actually going to do a swap cast, which, again, may be out by the time this one gets out, called uh, uh, Propaganda in the COVID Era. So we'll, we'll send you that one. Um, 
uh, what was I going to say? I can't remember what I was going to say. Yeah, I think, I think, um, I don't know if it was Julian I was talking to, but I've come to the realization that it was that 80s period, that Reagan Thatcher deregulation that, that was massively significant. And that was maybe where this change occurred. Because it, it just makes me think, you know, I mean, I would have loved to have been around the 60s anyway. I would have got, I would have got to London immediately, started a band, <laughs> whether or not it would have become successful. But it just seemed to me, even in this documentary, that it just seemed a bit more open. It just seemed like there was this huge opportunity. And then something seemed to happen around the 80s, maybe the deregulation and everything, and this, this sort of shutting down of the media. But... Um, because if you've got fast forward, I'm sure you've heard of Barry Zwicker. Have you, have you ever had him on your show? Or, I you know him, right? I think I have. Yeah, I've definitely talked to him. Did I have him on? I'm pretty you've sure. You've done so many shows. I've done so many. I I'll really, it's you. been 14 years. I'm sure yeah, I've talked I'll to him, you. yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he presented uh, some sort of prime time because he's Canadian. Mm-hmm. He's Canadian, isn't he? Yeah. I'm sure he presented some sort of prime time thing about 9-11 in Canada. Yeah. I was trying to think, but the, the idea that, I mean, we had that BBC conspiracy files, which was just, which I actually get to give it credit because I, I just saw through all the BS immediately when I started watching that. I mean, it's, it's absolutely scandalous. But the idea that they'd actually have an even-handed debate about something like 9-11 or, or maybe JFK back in the day, but th- that just seems impossible. I mean, it's maybe maybe Channel 4 if they were feeling particularly wacky or Channel 5 because no one watches it in England. Well, yeah, and <laughs> precisely because, precisely because yeah. you'll never see anything like that on i mean that's why something like joe rogan it becomes one of the most popular media things that has ever happened i mean millions and millions and millions of downloads a month really reaching huge mass audiences but it makes no sense from the old paradigms perspective and that's why you get these through massive three hour plus conversations rambling conversations um not that I'm defending the Joe Rogan podcast in particular but i think that just speaks to the phenomenon of how thoroughly the media paradigm has changed yeah, I like Joe Rogan, but I feel like I don't know. I have issues with the, this whole Spotify thing. Yes, yeah. and I have issues. Unfortunately, as well, but... he gets tagged with this. He's got. T- he's also kind of. He's got that bro thing going on as well. The UFC, and I think it trivializes a lot of the other stuff. I take it you've never been contacted by by him though to come on. <laughs> I get no, I emails from people. James, why don't you go on the Rogan podcast? I'm like, <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> well, let me pick up my magic podcaster phone and. Phone all the other podcasters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. We do, we've gone through the documentary and got some other good stuff out there. So lots of food for thought. So CorbettReport.com, uh, much better than the Colbert Report. I'm going to say that categorically, everybody. And, um, yeah, just uh, – and what have you got going on at the moment? You're teaching a course at Renegade University. Can yeah, you tell us I'm sure by the time this gets released, it will already be done. But yeah. uh, it it will be on the Renegade University site forever. So you can – at any time, even if you're listening to this in December or whenever you're listening to it, you will be able to go and uh, watch all three lessons of that course on the history of mass media. And so I'm going to be talking uh, precisely about some of the issues that we're talking about here, the development of mass media, how it influenced society, where we're going from here um, into the brave new world of the metaverse or whatever is coming next. Yeah. And I think Get Back will also be out by the time this comes oh. <laughs> out. And I heard something hilarious. I was listening to a podcast. I can't remember which one it was. And they were talking about they've, someone who actually has been working on it 
was talking, uh, I think it's Beatles Books podcast, very good podcast again. And he was saying that uh, they were talking about keeping up with the Kardashians. And he said that he, he has an idea that it might come out looking a bit like keeping up with the Beatles. Mm. Where where it would be, it, it's presented as some sort of soap opera. It's like January yeah. the second. Paul mm. does this. George does yeah, that. Yeah, good point. It could be. It's just quite hilarious. I'm boycotting story. it on principle. I'm not going to give Disney a penny. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Disney. Well, I'll, really? I, I might send. I'll send you a clandestine. <laughs> <laughs> it falls off the back of the internet lorry. Yes. <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, as we're recording this now, which is the end of October. Um, we've seen the trailer, and I mean, you can't argue with the, the, the quality of the, oh, the picture. Yeah, it looks amazing. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to revel in that. I don't mm. care about the narrative, whatever narrative. And for me, the surprising part, the really surprising part, you think of that area, you think John in his heroin haze and totally out of it, but he looks mm. really there. He looks present. He looks vivacious. Yeah, I think a lot of it is actually to do with uh, having to wake up early. And Twickenham was very dark, literally dark, mm. the soundstage, and it yeah. was cold. But I'm and picturing think, him in the studios of... later in the month where, I don't know, it just seemed, yeah, more lively than better. I expected. It looks better. All right, is there any closing comments you'd like to make before we go about this documentary or anything uh, else? I think we've covered the ground base of the documentary. I guess for people who are just dipping their toes into this, and even for people who aren't particularly interested in John Lennon, it's, I mean, an interesting entree into sort of just the general era and the political activism that was taking place. There are some interesting tidbits in here, so it would be probably worth your while if you're interested. Um, But having said that, yeah, if you want to go deeper, yeah, I'd say go to John Wiener, look at the actual memos and documents that have been released and find out what the real story of what they were doing. And, And keep it in perspective. Yeah, I don't think... I mean, it's not like John Lennon was enemy number one and it was such a heap, but it was something that really did happen. And they really did. We were keeping a file on him. They were trying to use political manipulations to try to get him out of the country because they were afraid of what he was going to be able to do potentially. And that, I don't know, they kind of gesture at it in the documentary. I don't think they ever come out and say it, but, you know, the the deportation um, proceedings start and John and Yoko basically never really political activists on the front lines ever again huh did they get yeah. the message seems it there was that tiny thing though that in fact he was uh, he probably heard this he was due to go out on a march about two days after he died uh however i don't yeah it was right. for japanese american workers in san francisco yep, it was a cousin yep, of yep, yoko yep, yep, yep. i'm not sure how much totally to read into that because they were going to bring sean with them so I, I would argue that it wasn't going to be like right on militancy mm. because they're bringing their son with them yeah but uh Anyway, I, I think, it, uh, you know, post-1980, I think he would have sort of popped up. And I think he, like I say, would have been on Twitter probably delivering sort of very pointed and quite wise missives to the world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I You know, right. your fantasy, you'd like to say he'd be on Glass Onion. I'd like to say <laughs> I'd be able to meet him because he'd be living in or coming to Japan. So we could hang oh, out. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? All right, um, I'm gonna let you go because you've got to go. Yeah. And my sister's got to get married today for the second time. <laughs> Congratulations, Anthony's sister. Well done, Marina. <laughs> Going for it again. Completely irrelevant since it's coming out in December. But anyway, um, thank you very much, and it's been lots of fun. And we'll thank talk you. again soon. Take care. All right. Bye.